Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today had 40 days to live, or so she thought, before she was treated with the innovative techniques that cleared the cancer from her body. It was a great privilege to spend time with Laurie Adamai and to hear her story. Laurie Adamai, I'm delighted that you were able to spend the time with me on the podcast today. Yours is an amazing story because in many ways, as I say to some of my friends, you are a miracle story. But before we get to the miracle story, let's talk about Laurie, the person. Who were you before Good Friday, the 2006? So I was a 46-year-old, and I lived in Los Angeles, and I was the president of a financial software company that I had joined at the age of 24 when it was just a brand new business. You know, it had been in existence for a number of years, but there wasn't really the capability technologically to do some of these calculations inexpensively. So it was sort of a very niche business. And I had moved from Boston to Los Angeles to join this little firm. And through a whole series of amazing things that happened, one was the rolling out of the personal computer. One was the development of a huge securitization market in mortgage products. And the third was increased regulatory requirements on the part of most financial institutions in the U.S. that owned bonds or fixed income securities that really allowed our firm to grow. So I was with this firm and started off doing customer service because I had been a portfolio manager in Boston. So I had actually used the software. So when I joined the firm, I started off by supporting clients and then moved into sales and marketing went back to New York for a few years to open an office for the firm. And then I ended up taking over as president when the founder retired in the late 90s. So I was kind of merrily going along and I didn't get married till I was 38 because I was one of these like so totally focused career minded people. I amassed 3 million miles on American Airlines because I was, for, for a couple of years, I was bi-coastal between LA and New York every two weeks getting on an airplane. I had an apartment in Manhattan and I had my place in LA. And every two weeks, like clockwork, I went back and forth. So I was just this crazed person. And I um, after we had a big earthquake in 1994, the Northridge earthquake, and I woke up by myself terrified. And I was at that point, this was 1994 that this happened. And just like, oh no, I, I just was, I need to be with someone the next time this happens. So I ended up meeting a guy. We got married in 1998. I was 38 years old and I got married. And then in 2000, I had my little boy, August. So I had my son when I was 40. And, you know, just sort of navigated managing a business, managing a household, raising a, a young child and all that entails. So that was my life before. And it was a wonderful life, but it was a very stress-filled life. So if you were to 
think back, you're thinking, well, global financial crisis is coming in 2008. How can I get out of this? You chose quite a way to do that. It's really funny because like people said to me, Laurie, if you wanted to leave financial services, you know, you could have done something besides get a stage four incurable cancer. But, oh, no, I guess I had to go out in style, right? So when my son was about three years old, so this was in about 2003, I started to feel unwell. And just like little things initially, I was really fatigued. I started to get sinus infections, and I'd never had sinus infections before. And the doctor suggested, oh, you probably have allergies. You live in Los Angeles, blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay, I'll go see an allergist. So I went to see an allergist. He ran all the allergy testing. And voila, I had no allergies. So, but in the meantime, the ear, nose, and throat guys are just like, oh, you just have allergies. Let's give you allergies. And I'm like, yeah, but nothing is showing up. And then I developed, I was a longtime contact lens wearer. And then I developed a very dry left eye to the point where I was no longer able to wear my contact lens. And somebody suggested, oh, well, you know, you're getting old, you know, things change. And, oh, maybe you have Sjogren's, which is an autoimmune disease. So I was sent to get tested for Sjogren. They have specific tests that rule that out and nothing. And then I felt something in my abdomen. One morning I was laying in bed and I thought, what is that weird lump? And my husband felt it and he said, yeah, you, go, you should go to your internist. So I went back to my internist. He felt it and he said, oh, it's probably a hernia. And he said, look, I ran your blood work. He said, your blood work's all fine. I listen to what you do. You travel a week a month to the East Coast or internationally. You run a business. You're raising a little kid. You're running around like you're crazy. I, he said, I'm exhausted just listening to you. So basically, I got, I guess they call it being gaslighted. You get into that situation where they just look at you like you're a hypochondriac. And so this went on. And I started to do my own digging because I was concerned. I also had an, a, a lump here. And again, the ear, nose, and throat doctor said, well, that's because you have a sinus infection. You could have a lump there for a year after. I mean, everybody just blew me off. And I'm blonde, which didn't help, right? So all these doctors are like, oh, she's some hypochondriac, blonde, crazy lady. So finally, I said to my husband, I want you to come with me to see a doctor. Because maybe with you with me, they'll, somebody will listen to, to me. Because, and you'll be there kind of as a witness. So we went to this ear, nose, and throat specialist who was supposed to be the best of the best. And I now know what I think of those doctors that are described as the best of the best. Anyway, I said, I'm really concerned that I might have lymphoma. So he turns to my husband and he rolls his eyes at my husband, like, oh my God, your wife is crazy. And he looks at me and he says, where in the world would you get the idea you have lymphoma? And I said, well, you know, I have this swollen node. I'm really exhausted. I have these chronic sinus infections, which means maybe I've got enlarged node. I don't know. But I'm just reading about this, the fatigue, my skin was getting itchy. You know, I had all these things. And he just like looks at me like you're out of your mind. He's like, oh, what? So now Dr. Google can diagnose you? 
I went to medical school for eight years. I did residency. I did, in, I did, I mean, he was the biggest, you know what? And I broke into tears because this is what I've been hearing. My husband was horrified. My husband said, how can you speak to someone like that? She's very concerned. How can you just be so dismissive? I mean, he stood up for me, but it was like, okay. So at that point, this is the spring of 2006. And I've been like, and you know, I wanted to believe them. I wanted to believe it was just due to my lifestyle and my stress. But in my heart, I knew something was really wrong. So I just dismissed all these doctors. I said, okay, I need to find a new doctor. And I got to a diagnostician who listened to my story. And he said, yeah, he said, you might have allergies. And this might be, your sinus infection might be caused by the allergies. And your tear ducts might be getting involved with, and that might be causing your dry eye. But he said this thing in your abdomen that, yeah, it feels like a hernia. He said, we don't guess about that. That's why we have CT machines. So he sent me two days, the next day, he called a, well, that day when I was in his office, he called a hernia specialist. He says, you need to get a, you need, I need to get a CT scan right away of this patient. I'm feeling something that could be a hernia, but it could also be something else. So I went in the next day and had a CT scan. And on Good Friday, which was the Friday of that week, I went in to see this internist and he broke the, no, the news to me that I actually had stage, very likely stage four cancer that was very likely metastatic because of the, they had discovered this huge mass in my abdomen that everybody was guessing was a hernia. And, you know, when I went in for the scan, they said, oh, we don't need to do contrast, just a straightforward hernia check scan. So I'm in there, they, they roll me out of the machine and the lady comes in and says, we need you to drink contrast. And I said, well, my doctor told me I wouldn't have to drink. She said, no, we're not getting clear enough pictures. So I'm laying there and my stomach is just sinking like, uh-oh, right? So Good Friday, I go in and he tells, he drops the bomb that I very likely have metastatic non-Hodgkin lymphoma. He set up an appointment with an oncologist for the following Tuesday. That was Easter weekend. I was actually supposed to fly out on Monday to Chicago and New York because my firm was having conferences for our clients. And so I was scheduled on a flight on Monday and I wasn't coming back till Friday night. And so I actually looked at the intern and I said, well, I can't travel next week. I have a business trip. And he said, okay, but you need to see an oncologist. And then I'm talking to him and I'm suddenly, yeah, I'm not going anywhere, am I? He said, I hope not. <laughs> so Tuesday I went in, I had a PET CT scan. I was stage four. Then the guesstimate was it was very likely a type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And they wanted to, you know, it was everywhere. The thing up here was lighting up. I actually had cancer in my tear duct that was blocking my tear duct, which was why my eye was so dry. And I had disease in my lungs that initially the internist said, God, Lori, you might actually have lung cancer and non-Hodgkin. But it turns out the, the mats in my lungs were the non-Hodgkin. It was all part of the same thing. And I was stage four. It was in my bone marrow. It was everywhere. So here's this guy telling me a month earlier, you don't have anything. You don't have lymphoma. So you know what I did? I wrote a letter to the guy. And I didn't, I would never sue anyone. I don't, that's not who I am. But I wrote him a letter. I said, I just want you to know. I said, I think you probably remember me. 
I was a blonde woman. I came in with my husband, Ben, because I wanted him to know there was a witness. And I said, you were very dismissive and very insulting. And in fact, I have stage four non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And I hope next time a patient comes in, you don't demean them. He never responded, but I did what I could do to hopefully see that he did less damage with patients than he did with me. You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. Medical School 101, lymphoma is the great mimic. It can present with all of the symptoms that you describe. The secret is piecing all of it together and realizing that one plus one equals two and listening very closely to the patient. That is what unfortunately didn't happen. I know he probably had seen 30 patients before me that all had allergies. And it was like that, you know, that what they say when you're facing forward and you hear the sound of hoof prints, you think you're going to hear a horse. You're not looking for a zebra. And I was the zebra and he would have nothing. He wanted to hear nothing about it. You know, he was just dismissive. So anyway, to cut a, a really long story a little shorter, that was when I got the diagnosis. And so then I was biopsied and it was determined that I had follicular non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which is the second most common type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma after diffuse large B-cell. And I was actually kind of hoping I would have diffuse large B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma because it has very high cure rates. Whereas follicular, which is the second most common, which is considered a, an indolent, less aggressive disease, it was not, is still not considered curable. Even with the advent of CAR-T, they just don't know enough yet. Now, it's interesting because my oncologist actually believes I'm cured of the follicular, even though it's incurable. And I tell him I'm perfectly happy to be in complete remission. Complete remission is music to my ears. And then I said, and if you really think you've cured me of cancer, how about curing me of my mortality? Because something's going to get me, you know. The fact that they've managed the thing that you've described is a joy to hear. Now, I was thinking back about your thing about zebras. Uh, we call them zebras in this part of the world. The thing about that is when somebody says, you're hearing hoof bits that sound like a horse, but look at my stripes. If the patient is telling you something that they're worried about and you come with the diagnosis that needs to be addressed in some way, and let's hope that the people that see that doctor really do have allergies and nothing more than that. Just like I wrote to that ear, nose, and throat guy to let him know that what actually happened and that he needed to maybe think about his presentation and his emotional skills. I also wrote to that internist who listened to me to thank him for putting the pieces together and getting me to a scan machine for Pete's sake. I mean, we live in the, you know, at that point, you know, when we're in the 21st century, we have these tools. And finally, he listened to me. So thankfully, I got to the right person. It just took a while. But you know what's really interesting is if I'd been diagnosed two years prior, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. Because if I'd been diagnosed two years prior, I would have undergone my first treatment, which ultimately didn't work, and I relapsed right away. And then I wouldn't have had other options. 
So getting to the diagnosis when I got to it, in hindsight, ended up being a blessing in my case. Because it didn't kill me in that two years, and it bought time in a way. Tell us about that treatment, because not many of our listeners will have heard about this or appreciated the great steps that have been taken to get you to this point. From 2006 to 2018, I was in continuous treatment for my cancer. I could never get in a complete sustained remission, ever. In that 12-year period, I had seven different lines of therapy, including three clinical trials and then also three newly FDA-approved drugs. They just got approved in time so I could go on to them. One of the drugs that I did was a phase one study. It was a Gilead drug called Zydelig. And I was in the phase one study and I started in 2011. So there were 20 of us in the phase one study at UCLA. And I was actually the long tail in the trial, meaning I was on that, that pill the longest of anyone else in that trial. I was on it for over five years and it held my cancer stable. It never got rid of my cancer. And when I had to stop it because of side effects, cancer immediately grew back again. So then I'd go back on a lower dose. So we kind of, I wanted to ride it as long as I could because I'd heard about this new treatment called CAR-T and I heard about it 10 years ago. I heard about it in 2012 and it blew me away because unlike every treatment that I had so far, and in 2012, I was already on my fifth line of therapy, which was this PI3 kinase inhibitor trial that I was on, this Zydelig, um, that I took two pills every day. But all of these therapies I, I was on, they were all just off the shelf. Infusions combination of chemo drugs, monoclonal antibodies, or they were targeted as enzyme inhibitors. And this one, the one that I was on for five years was a PI3 kinase inhibitor, but I'd also been on an HDAC inhibitor, another small, what they call small molecule drugs. But they're all, they all come out of factory. Well, this, this new therapy I heard about called CAR-T, which stands for chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy actually takes the patient's own T-cells. So they're removed from the patient. They're put in a lab with what they call a viral vector that opens up the T-cells and a target is placed on the patient's T-cells. And then the cells are grown in the lab for about three weeks. So they removed about a million cells from my body at my apheresis. They grew it in the lab for three weeks into probably a billion cells. And then a month after my cells were removed, I received those cells back. And on my birthday, my CAR-T birthday, so that's the day they put the cells back in the patient's bloodstream. And then you wait. And you wait to see if you develop side effects. And you wait to see what happens with your tumors. So... When I went in for my CAR-T, I was about, probably about 60 days from dying. I had, my oncologist estimated I had over eight pounds of tumors. And if I actually have this PET scan from before my CAR-T cell infusion, reinfusion, and it's unbelievable. I mean, I had, t- I had cancer everywhere. 
it was in my bone marrow. I had a blockage in my right kidney. And the oncologist, my oncologist was talking about perhaps needing to put a stent in me because my kidney wasn't gonna, was going to stop operating. So I was really sick. And like, if you were talking to me, you wouldn't even recognize me. I had tumors in my face that were blocking my ears. Like my oncologist used to laugh, Lori, I can't see your ear anymore. Like, That's not funny. I was so sick. So I was probably, I don't know, 45 or 60 days away from dying when I went into the hospital to get my cells back. Now, mind you, I had no other options left. Really, there was nothing left. And this was my seventh line of therapy. And while I had a great deal of confidence in this, and I'd, I mean, I had learned, I'd gone to conferences about CAR T, I had consulted with numerous doctors, numerous patients. So I had really learned about it. I also knew because of my large disease burden that I was very likely going to have potentially could have very severe side effects from getting the cells back and then the inflammatory process that your body undergoes when you get these cells back. And this was four years ago. So I'm approaching my four-year anniversary, July 16th is my four-year CAR-T birthday, and I'll be getting scanned, my four-year scan, but my oncologist goes, ah, you're fine. He's not even worried. He just says, I mean, look at you. Look at, you know, I'm, I'm training for a marathon now. I, I do 100,000 steps a week. I mean, I'm like, I swim a mile in a lap pool several times a week. I mean, I'm stronger probably than I ever have been in my life. And, you know, when I was a career person and I had a baby, that was the first thing that I gave up was exercise. I didn't have time for exercise. So that was, that was like one of the first things to go. Now I have time to do that. I have time to take care of myself. July 15, 2018, I checked into the mothership at UCLA, Ronald Reagan UCLA Hospital right in Los Angeles, about a stone's throw from my house where I live. And on the morning of July 16th, I got my CAR T cells back. And it was the most anticlimactic thing you can imagine. They bring in like a, they bring in this metal container. Looks like kind of like R2D2. They open the lid of it and out pours the dry ice. And then the technician pulls out this little bag of what looks like pond scum. And those are my CAR T cells. And I say, you're gonna put that in me? I don't know if I want that in me. And it was, it was a 15, 18 minute infusion. That was it. And then you wait and you wait to see what kind of side effects you're gonna get. Now this was a phase two trial. So I was one of five patients at UCLA that were in this trial. It was the Zuma 5 trial, which was for follicular non-Hodgkin and, and marginal zone non-Hodgkin patients. And so there were five of us enrolled at UCLA. There were 80 across the US that were enrolled. So at other large cancer centers, you know, MD Anderson, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Mayo Clinic, Fred Hutchinson, all these, you know, the big sort of cancer research, you know, NCI um, hospitals. And so I was the first patient and I underwent quite a journey after getting my cells back. And as we suspected, because I had close to 10 pounds of tumor burden, when those cells hit my bloodstream, they just expanded and went crazy. 
And, and so the two most common side effects that are associated with, CAR, with the CAR-T therapy, one is called cytokine release syndrome, and the other is neurotoxicity. So if you're familiar with severe COVID, severe COVID patients can experience cytokine release syndrome because their body goes into this inflammatory, crazy state where the body's trying to defend itself from this virus. And so you end up with very high fevers, you end up with very, very low blood pressure and very potentially very high heart rate. And then with neurotoxicity, because they're your own T cells, your T cells cross your blood brain barrier. And so your CAR T cells, even though I never had cancer in my brain, the CAR T cells are on like a heat, they're like heat seeking missiles and they go everywhere to, to try to seek out any cancer that exists and destroy it. Because remember, these CAR T cells have a target on it. And in my case, it was the CD19 B cell target. And so that's what the T cells were targeting. And so anywhere there was a CD19 positive B cell, which is what kind of cancer I had, it destroyed that. And so one month later, so August 15th, I was taken to the, to the PET scan machine and I was scanned to learn my cancer was completely gone in 30 days. And I mean, it was just so bizarre because I was looking in the mirror and I'm like, I thought maybe they had done surgery on my face because it looked like I had holes. Because remember, I couldn't even see my ears. And they're examining me where I had all these tumors. I couldn't feel anything. And so, and this was quick. I mean, the day I got my CAR T cells back, I started to feel tingling. And I said to the oncologist when he came in, I said, you know, it's really weird. Like, I feel like I'm getting tingling all where I have these tumors. He said, we don't know that much yet, so it's very possible. And sure enough, the, the, the CAR T was working right away. So at the one month point, I was completely rid of the cancer. I was, I didn't believe it at first, honestly. I thought somebody had typed up this report. I thought they were kidding with me. And my husband was joyous. And I was just skeptical because you have to remember, I'd had six relapses and never got that remission. And to hear that word, you're cancer free, I just, I had this like disbelief. But then I had a scan at 90 days that was clean and a scan at six months, a year, 18 months, two years, three years, and now four years. So I guess I kind of believe it now. So this, this CAR-T is, is really, for me, I needed it, and it came right in time. I mean, I was really, I was done. I was, I was like, <laughs> I was done, you know, truly. And my son, who was in kindergarten when I was diagnosed, you know, he spent his entire elementary school, middle school, high school years with a sick mother who was in treatment continuously. I never got a treatment break. Every drug I was on always had side effects. It just kind of went with the territory. And, and so I was dealing with Crohn's disease from one of the drugs that I was put on. And I was dealing with, and I lost my hair three times. That's why I keep it short now, because it's like, hair, who needs it? It's overrated. So anyway, so my son, who was in kindergarten when I was diagnosed, he had just graduated from high school 
And the day after I got out of the hospital from my CAR T, he flew to Washington, D.C. by himself to start his freshman year of college. And, you know, I was so motivated to stay alive because of him. And my husband says, well, what about me? And I said, well, you know, you'll get another wife. But, you know, a little boy or a little girl, they can't get a new mommy or daddy. I'm like, and but I tell you, that was a huge motivator. And I went to four different cancer places for my first four treatments. I just was on this mission to stay alive. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. It's an extraordinary story. You mentioned that there were other people on the trial. Did they do as well? I do know two of the five. So there were three of the five of us at UCLA that I happened to meet after the fact, just coincidentally. And those two were in complete remission as well. I don't know about the other two. But I do know that ultimately the Zuma 5 trial had 160 patients because they did that first cohort of 80 patients. And then because it was going so well, they did a second cohort of 80 patients. And two and a half years after I had CAR-T, the FDA approved it based on the data that came out that was published. And of the 160 patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma that were in the Zuma 5 study, there was a 95% overall response rate meaning 95% of the patients had responses and over 80% got complete remission. And based on that data alone, it was fast-tracked and FDA approved because show me any chemotherapy that has, I mean, nothing has ever had over 80% complete response rates. And that's how well it works for follicular non-Hodgkin. And it's, it's got the best outcomes so far for follicular non-Hodgkin. It's being used now for multiple myeloma. It's being used for diffuse large B-cell. It's being used for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. It's being used for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, both adult and pediatric. So it's being used on all kinds of blood cancers at this point. And it's starting, like I know, I know a patient that's getting it for gastrointestinal cancer. I know a patient getting it for ovarian I know a patient getting their, their trials for glioblastoma now, you know, brain cancer. So, but to date, the best results so far have been for follicular, which is interesting. It is interesting, and it is very exciting for us in medicine to think that we're making these kind of advances. I imagine someone somewhere is going to win the Nobel Prize if they haven't already. James Allison at MD Anderson won the Nobel Prize for his work in immunotherapy that led to checkpoint inhibitors. And checkpoint inhibitors, they're not a customized medicine, but they manipulate aspects of the immune system and turn off certain things. And there have been breakthroughs now for melanoma. So I know a guy who was in a, in a checkpoint inhibitor trial for, trial for melanoma 20 years ago. He was in the first round, and he's now in his 80s, and he never thought he'd survive melanoma. 
you know, it's the same disease that Jimmy Carter had. And he got uh, Keytruda, which is a checkpoint inhibitor, and he's been well. I mean, he's a, I mean, he's in his 90s. He's amazing. And he, you know, he says, I wouldn't even be here because melanoma should have killed me. So the, the advancements are, are incredible. The other advancements. So when I did it four years ago, I was a guinea pig when I did CAR-T. There weren't that many patients before me. And patients that had a lot of disease didn't do so well because of all the side effects. But now what they learned from us, from the early patients and how to manage cytokine release syndrome and how to manage neurotoxicity to prevent brain seizures, these tools they have now, it's really interesting what they learned because they've used them to keep COVID patients alive also. So they use things like tozaluzumab, which is a monoclonal antibody. They use steroids. They use anti-seizure medications prophylactically. I remember reading an account of an, uh, one of the guys that was interviewed by, I think, the New York Times early on with, with severe COVID, who'd been intubated and was hallucinating and was talking about, he was in Seattle and he was talking about his hospital bed hanging off the side of the space needle. And those were the kinds of things that I experienced hallucinations because they didn't give me prophylactic medication. I just went into it. They just didn't know. They thought steroids would kill the CAR T cells. And they, now they know you could still dampen the CAR T cells, but I still would have had billions. You know, they thought I probably had about 18 billion CAR T cells after it hit my bloodstream, after that billion cells that they estimated. My oncologist said, you probably have 16 or 18 billion. That's how much cancer I had. The cells just got so excited and it caused me to have some difficult side effects. But, you know, my oncologist felt really bad after it. And I said, you know, if it weren't for CAR-T, I wouldn't be here. So even though I went through a difficult time, I would do it again in a heartbeat because it's the only thing that got rid of my cancer that I'd lived with for 12 years and no good outcomes. And the other nice thing about CAR-T is it's a one and done. Unlike like that drug I was on for five years that gave me Crohn's, chemotherapies can be a year of treatments. This is a one and done. You get it and you are done. And I can't say, knock on wood, that I have any long-term side effects. I'm still living with neuropathy from the chemotherapy I had in 2006. But the CAR-T, I mean, I feel better than I ever did. So I, I kind of joke, I'm like the Benjamin Button character where it's aging me backwards, you know? And I mean, I'm stronger than I've ever been. I'm physically in better condition than I've ever been. And I have a whole new outlook on life. All that stress, all that hogwash I worried about when I was running a company, what a waste of energy. Now I know it's today and that's all I have. There's no ever any guarantee of anything. So my whole life is just transformed. And I know it's due to cancer. It's terrible. It's like I should never be grateful for getting cancer. But seriously, it took cancer. It took an, an 800-pound gorilla to wake me up. <laughs> you talked about one element that kept you going, and, and that was the love of your son. And that's very understandable. What are the 
if, the, if we were to say there were three, what are the other two? Do you want to tell us about the two superpowers that you have? I've always been a very thorough, I guess, type A personality. And, you know, many patients will say, oh, the doctor told me to do this and the doctor's God, so I'm going to do what the doctor says. And I didn't have the highest regard after what I went through trying to get diagnosed. And, I, you know, of course, I have a great deal of respect for medical doctors. And in order to become a medical doctor, you've got to be incredibly academically smart because you can't get into med school unless you're academically very smart, right? But I learned that they didn't always have the best skills at communication. You know, sometimes there were large egos involved where it was difficult to fit myself in the examining room with the ego of a doctor. I mean, and I say that because, you know, they're all people and they're just people, right? So, but I recognized early on that I needed to own that I was the most invested in my outcome. I'm going to see some doctor and he's going to go home or she's going to go home, but I have to live with it and I have to fight to stay alive. So I took it upon myself to become as educated as I could in my own illness. And I talked to as many patients on the road ahead of me as I could find because I wanted to find examples of survivors and learn what they did. And so I became very active. I would go to a conference to learn about new therapies. I began to, there are many nonprofits like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society for pancreatic cancer. There's a pancreatic cancer action network, you know, so for all of any disease that you have, finding that nonprofit because they have support groups and you'll meet people. They're on the road ahead of you. They can give you hope. So for me, educating myself and getting hope was my second thing. Because remember, my first thing was staying alive for my kid. And I was going to do everything I could to do that. The third trick that I learned was moving. And if I'm moving, I'm not dead. I don't care what anybody says. So after chemo, I wanted to come home and go to bed. And I said, you know what? That's just going to make me feel worse. I'm going to put my tennis shoes on and I'm going to walk to the end of my street. And if I just go 200 steps, I've done something to keep moving. And I started lap swimming. I had never swum laps in my life. And I used to, we had a community pool where we were living at the time in Santa Monica. And I used to go to the pool and I would swim. And then my son was taking swimming lessons. So he would do a swimming lesson and I would do laps in the lap pool. And then he would join me for laps. And he called me the putt-putt machine because I was so slow. But I thought, you know, if I'm moving, I'm not dead. That was the third leg of the table for me was because every time I just felt bad for myself and I went to bed, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I just I just refused to lay down and I refused to to be around negative, like doc, like I had a doctor who told me, he told me, he was one of my first opinions. And he said, I'd give you a 50% chance that you'll be alive in two years. And I said, I said, that's horrible. How can you say that to me? He said, 
He said, what are you talking about? Two years is a really long time. I said, not if you have a little boy in kindergarten and you're 46 years old. Maybe if I was 88 and I got this disease, then that might make sense. And I never, and he was at a big research facility in LA. I never went back to that place because I said, you're not going to be, you're not going to predict because I'm not going to get treated by somebody who gives me a 50% chance of being alive in two years. That's insanity. So I was like, no, no. You know, and I, and I also learned that I'm not 50% of anything. I'm a hundred percent. I'm here today. I'm a hundred percent or I'm dead and I'm zero. And I'm going to be in the 100% category. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to be active. I'm going to meet other people ahead of me who can give me hope. I'm going to talk to doctors working on new treatments that aren't the old paradigm of chemos, stem cell transplants, all the stuff that are so damaging to every cell in my body. I'm going to seek out different types of therapies, and I'm going to do my best to get those therapies. And that's, that's what I did, you know? And I also got lucky, to be honest with you. I lived in Los Angeles. And I mean, I had great, like at UCLA, they're, they're one of two facilities in the US who started CAR-T after the work that was done at the National Institutes of Health and National Cancer Institute. There was a guy, Ari Beldegrun, who ended up starting KITE in Los Angeles. And there was a guy, Carl June, you know, KITE was developed at UCLA. There was a guy, Carl June, who was at University of Pennsylvania, and Novartis bought his approach. And I was just lucky I lived in L.A. and I could get to those therapies to keep me going. But I know if I lived in another, in a, you know, even if I lived in Bakersfield, California, it would have been harder. You know, it was easy for me to get to researchers, to talk to researchers. To I also did a lot of fundraising. And I did fundraising for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So I thought if I can raise money and with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, if I raised $50,000, I could choose where all that money went. So I could choose a researcher who was looking at funding. And so I did big fundraisers. So, and it was very selfish in the beginning because I thought if I can raise money and donate to a researcher, maybe I can actually benefit Ultimately, it hopefully ended up just helping a lot of other people, those grants that I was able to make. But I'm still doing a fundraiser. And when I go to Everest Base Camp, I'm trying to raise $250,000 for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I've raised over 100 so far. But my, my fundraising kind of got shifted to the side because of COVID. And now I'm really trying to pay it, pay it to the next person who needs help. And I'm trying to give other people hope, you know, that you can survive, that you can overcome these diagnoses. And yeah, obviously, depending upon the diagnosis you're hit with, your outcome could be not as favorable as what I ended up being able to do. And that's why I continue to raise money, because all this research is going to bubble up to help cancers like pancreatic cancer and brain cancer and prostate and breast and all these really difficult diagnoses. And I really try to make myself available to other patients. So I'm a, I'm a volunteer for a number of different organizations. So when a patient is newly diagnosed, I get connected with that patient. Because I think talking to a patient, it's one thing to talk to a doctor 
I mean, a doctor sees tons of patients every day, but a doctor doesn't experience the illness. I mean, the nurses experience, experience it more than the doctors because they're the, they're the ones that are sitting with you in the treatment room and dealing with your side effects when you're dealing with side effects. But then it's nothing like talking to a patient who's gone through it before you and can completely empathize with how you feel. And in my case, I had a young son, so we had to figure out how to, how to communicate with my son. So you've got so many different issues you're dealing with. And if you've gone through it, I, I just have so much empathy and so much care for other people. And people are like, why do you do this? And I said, because I had one person do it for me in the beginning. And it changed the, my approach from, from feeling like I had like become a victim, that my body had totally let me down, to becoming empowered and to realize that I had to be my own advocate and to understand and to other people, not everybody can advocate for themselves. You might have a language barrier or you might have an age barrier where you're not comfortable with computers. So find someone who can advocate for you. And in cases, I'll become that advocate for people because I can do that. I have the time now. I have the experience. I'm not a doctor, but, you know, having gone through it for 12 years, I was diagnosed 16 years ago. I've learned a boatload. And I think if there is such a thing as reincarnation and I have another life coming, I really think I'd like to work in the healthcare profession. No financial stuff for me anymore. That's just a way to help people make money. That's boring. So now I, I come back and I want to do something totally different. So the fourth ingredient, this fourth superpower was luck. Your story resonates so much with many of our listeners because we are increasingly beginning to understand that healthcare in the future is going to be a partnership, a co-pilot situation between patients and their, their healthcare providers. And of course, backed by the science such as you've described you are right, you are giving back. And from your perspective, there's so much more that healthcare can do other than advances in science. It is in how we respond to people in distress. And that, for me, was the key message in what you were talking about. You were fortunate that science has got to the point where it can do something to help you. But there's so much more that healthcare can do to help people without having to go back to the drawing board. And it's simply a case of not dismissing patients when they come and they say, I think there's something wrong with me. And I look at my stripes. I've got, it's not just the hoofbeats that describe a horse. Laurie Adamai, it's been a joy and a pleasure spending time with you today. We wish you ongoing health and well-being and we'll do everything we can to promote your message and to support your cause. Thank you. And when I get to Nepal, perhaps I can make it to Australia at the same time. I'd love to meet you in person and you know, thank you for the work that you're doing and thank you for giving me this opportunity to share my story. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>